Hello, good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming to the Dorfman, which to me looks completely transformed. It looks almost like the Olivier now. Um, but we've got from now till precisely quarter to seven to cover what we are going to cover, which is um, around uh, Tony's new book, Year of the King, The Lear Diaries, and there will be, um, there will be a, 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 book, a, a chance to buy the book and to get Tony to sign it for you. Uh, at the main book shop in the main foyer. Um, but let's talk about what you're, you've written about, Tony. Um, you've got form with Lear, <laughs> because 25 years ago, can it be, you played the fool to Michael Gambon's Lear, and that was also for the Royal Shakespeare. That was company. my first job yeah, at the RSC. Yeah, that was even before Richard III, of course. Yes, it was, yes. And Richard III um, sort of lifted you into the spotlight, e obviously, even further, and was a huge success and won you many awards. Um, and you wrote about the process of playing Richard and preparing for that play um, in a book which also has become a sort of classic, um, if you like, um, a textbook about how to prepare for a play and um, what it was like for you, the actor in it, and it's still very much in print. Um, and you brought us several accounts of, from your diaries, of, of very honest, this one is, I think, one of the most honest of them all, of, of what it's like to do that. Um, and um, the year of the Mad King is just published, and it chronicles what, it was 2016, wasn't it? Yes. Um, how you, um, the production of King Lear, directed by your partner, Greg Doran, um, in concept, in rehearsal, and of course in production. Um, and that was an enormous success, but there were, and this is where I think you um, have been very honest, some very scary moments. But l playing Lear is a massive mountain to climb. Well, you know, it's known as the Everest of acting. And um, there are some people who think that actually it can't be done at all. You know, the Charles Lamb, the essayist, uh, he, he wrote that people should keep rereading Lear and avoid its staged travesties. <laughs> And even in modern times, the, the, the great um, American Shakespeare scholar, Harold Bloom, has said that he agrees with, with Charles Lamb and that people should just read it and that it's unstageable. So, so you sort of <laughs> come to this with quite a lot of bad news. And uh, lots of books <laughs> written lots about of, it. Lots yeah. of books about mm. About how difficult it is. So, um, but that's good. You you start with knowing that it's going to be a challenge. But you, I think you write in the book that you felt, "Am I right for it? I'm the wrong size. I've got the wrong voice. I'm the mm. wrong shape." Mm. But I mean, what was Leah's shape? We don't know. Well, no, it's <laughs> that, that's just a little syndrome that I do with myself. With with <laughs> every Shakespeare part I play, I kind of think I'm not right and I could cast somebody else but that's just a little bit of self-flagellation that I tend to do. <laughs> but what is the, the, the nature of the mountain is what? Why is Lear so difficult? 
I guess it can be summed up by, you know, the famous uh, storm scene in the middle of the play. And you realize that Lear is arguing with the storm. You know, that's blow winds and crack your cheeks. This is a man arguing <laughs> with the storm. So you don't really, a, a mere actor is not going to be uh, powerful enough to do that. So ideally, the, the part needs to be played by some kind of force of nature, another storm, you know. So that's the size of it. It has an epic, epic quality. And in the early part of the play, he has rage after rage, which seem to grow each time, which is very tough, you know, on the actor. It becomes easier in the second half, actually, when he goes mad and then kind of recovers from the madness. And in the last section of the play is saner and gentler and more loving than we've actually seen. Some directors have um, presumably interpreted the raging of Lear and the storm scenes differently. Um, uh, how, do, how do you suppose Shakespeare in his day, how do you suppose the actors um, created the storm? Did they have good stage effects in those days? They did in the 18th century, but um, yes. probably not in the 17th. Yeah, I have no idea how they would have done the storm. I'm thinking of the, the film of The Dresser, you know, about Donald Wolfett, where they, you see backstage the oh, yeah. rattling pieces of, of, of tin and, and rolling, rolling balls back and forward on tin, tin to create the uh, thunder. I don't, I don't know. You write very frankly about um, your own physical health uh, during the time you were preparing. Um, and of course, you and Greg, I think, have a pact that you try not to mix um, your home relationship with your professional relationship. Yes. And, and is that yep. still difficult? Or? Oh, no, it's essential. I mean, you know, we learned the hard way. The first uh, production we did together was Titus Andronicus at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg, which was actually a co-production with the National Theatre, and we, we brought it and performed it in this uh, theatre. Well, in that, on that production, we hadn't learned this rule about not, not bringing work home, so I'm afraid we came home and carried on, and a few gin and tonics were taken, <laughs> and eventually plates flew. <laughs> so we made a strict <laughs> resolution after that, which we've kept to extremely well of work finishes at the end of rehearsals. But I refer to um, uh, things that happened sort of off stage uh, and nothing to do with the theatre that you were conscious of all the time. You had two members of your family, including your sister, very ill back in Cape Town, and you, uh, you know, it must have been desperate for you, do I fly there? Yeah. What, what do I do? Do I not do this play for that reason? Yeah. Well, she actually sadly passed away, as did my sister-in-law. And it brought me very close to something which I think pervades uh, King Lear, which is 
the smell of mortality. There's a, a famous exchange when the blind Gloucester, when they meet, when Gloucester is blind and Lear is mad, and Gloucester recognizes Lear's voice and he says, let me kiss that hand. And Lear says, let me wipe it first. It smells of mortality. And that smell of mortality, the fragility of life, I think is something that's very powerfully in Lear. I was unfortunately experiencing it in real life at the same time. And sometimes the things that happen to you in real life, uh, you know, can feed the work. This just felt too close for comfort. But I guess it, it does feed the work as well. You know, I think in any of the art forms, <coughs> whether acting or, or music or painting, you know, the artist is um, expressing his experience of human life and and so those painful things are a part of, of, you know, what one needs to express. You act, you can act and you can paint and you can write wonderfully, but <coughs> I think you wouldn't claim to be a very musical person. I think no, you're I'm slightly tone deaf. Not you? slightly. Oh. I'm <laughs> chronically <laughs> tone deaf. It's uh, quite serious. But as long as I don't sing, it's, it's fine. <laughs> but you did, um, uh, in real life, fi think that you were perhaps going deaf, not just tone deaf, but deaf. Yeah. This, this is a theme that runs through the book um, and causes you s a lot of distress. Did you, m first of all, tell us what it was like to be on stage like that and then whether you managed to fix it? Well, it, no, it, it sort of started in rehearsals uh, from nowhere, a, a feeling of going deaf in one ear, and at first, you know, I just went to have my ears syringed, and then went to a doctor, and then to an ENT specialist, and then another one, and it just gradually became more serious, until it got to the point of me wondering whether I was going to be able to do the show. Which must have been a worry for Greg. <laughs> Terrible worry. I mean, there was a point when he, he said to me, I don't know what to do. He said, I'm in three positions here. I'm the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm the director of this production of King Lear. And I'm your husband. <laughs> and I just don't know how to help this. And then finally, one of the... ENT specialist said, I can't find anything properly wrong with your hearing. Could it be anxiety? And I thought, well, yes, I'm playing King Lear. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there is cause for anxiety. And somehow, as soon as that was propositioned, you know, that that was an idea, it became easier. Uh, although it didn't go away, but it, uh, I sort of relaxed with it, and it became like, I don't know, like a sportsman playing with an injury or something, and I sort of forgot about it, but it was a strange, it's not really strange, because the job that we do, acting, is so strange, really. 
that <laughs> I'm, I'm never completely surprised by the, the little funny things that happen to one to one's body when you're doing it because it's uh, there's an enormous pressure on you. When you say your body, you had a, um, a, a shoulder, in South Africa one would say a crook shoulder, <laughs> and you I'd were worried about not being able to pick up Cordelia. Yes, I had the, the bad shoulder as well. I've, I've had that replaced now. I've had a total shoulder replacement, which I can recommend to anyone. <laughs> well, you mean even if they don't need it? <laughs> even if you don't need it. It's a wonderful <laughs> thing. <laughs> But, but in the in the production of Lear, how did you cope with? You didn't pick up Cordelia. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. So we created a kind of Pieta image, where I was seated on a on a sort of cart, which you had seen earlier in the in the hovel scene, and she was uh, on my lap. So it was it was. Just as effective. Yeah. 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 Read us a bit, Tony, if you would, um, that you've got a, an extract from your book which involves, which sort of explains how you and Greg sort of worry over certain yes. aspects of the play. And refers to, to my previous experience of, of playing the fool uh, to Michael Gambon's Lear. And, and I had played the fool as a sort of clown figure with white face and red nose and little bowler hat and the only thing you need to know that in in this extract when i refer to graham that's graham turner who is currently playing the fool in our production friday the 24th of june 2016. yesterday there was a referendum should Britain remain in the EU or leave? Today, not only the result, but some results of the result. Britain will leave the EU. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, resigns. The pound crashes to a 30-year low. When we were leaving the house, Greg said, right, well, let's go and rehearse a play about a country tearing itself apart. <laughs> In the morning, I had another solar session with Greg. As we sat down, I said, I've got something I'd like to talk about. Greg said, me too. We're both trying scrupulously to observe our principal rule when we do a show together, only discuss work when at work. You go first, I said. Well, it's this idea of homeless people being in the action, he said. It's the other side to life in the court. It's the side that Edgar is forced into when he becomes poor Tom, the side that Gloucester has to join when he's blinded, and then Lear too when he goes mad. So I think we should show the homeless at various points throughout the first half, and then of course in the storm. Good, I said, that sounds good. So you'd be okay with doing the poor naked wretches speech with them actually around you? I hesitated. You mean them naked? No, no, not naked. Oh, good, otherwise I could be a bit upstaged. <laughs> you won't be. Good, then it's a terrific idea, let's try it. 
Good, echoed Greg, your turn. Well, I was wondering if in the mad scene, Lear turns into the fool. It sort of explains the fool's disappearance from the play. It's because Lear has become the fool. Greg leaned forward. But it's what Donald Sindon did in that production, when was it, mid-70s, with Michael Williams playing the fool for the second time. Sindon did the mad scene half-dressed as Williams. I didn't know that, I said lightly. God, I hate Greg's encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge <laughs> of RSC productions. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I have a special right to turn into the fool. Sorry, that sounds arrogant, but I don't mean it to be. But ever since we decided we were definitely doing Lear, I've had this secret private idea that I should play the mad scene like I played the fool. Greg frowned. How exactly? Very simply, if Graham could wear a red nose, like you did, exactly, and Greg interrupted, look, I've said this before, I can't, I won't ask Graham to play the fool like you did. Anyway, red noses aren't really part of our world, are they? Our pagan world. No, but if it was something less manufactured, something more natural, like what? Like, I don't know, a tomato. <laughs> a tomato. <laughs> yes, if in the dinner scene after the hunt, if there were tomatoes on the table, and if Graham put one on his nose, sort of squashed it on, we can do some kind of cheat, some kind of fastening. Greg's frown grew. And then? And then, when I come on in the mad scene, it can be with a squashed tomato on your <laughs> nose. Well, yeah, sort of, as a little echo of the red... I went silent. We both did. Then Greg said, let's think about it, shall we? <laughs> You, um, I think shortly after that part of the book, you go on to say that the first day of rehearsal proper, without any um, tomatoes, <laughs> presumably by that stage, was one of the strangest that you'd ever experienced. Tell us why. Well, no, that was purely because the hearing thing had become an issue by then. And so it was very odd beginning rehearsal with everyone, the whole cast there, and me not able to hear properly. It just gave me a very strange, dislocated feel. And um, it, it, it was just odd, but as I say, we got over that. What I'd love to know is how you find the time and have found over the years to write your diary notes as well as learning the part. It's a long part, Leah, obviously. Yes. And as one gets older, um, some actors will admit to this, it's harder to learn parts than... Would you join that crowd? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, year, this book is called Year of the Mad King. Well, I started learning Leah about a year before... We did it. It's something that I do now, um, so that the lines are just totally ingrained. 
you have to learn it, the lines in neutral so that you don't close off any um, you know, creative uh, possibilities that will happen with you. You just learn them as if they were a sort of, uh, you don't change your voice, you just... No, you, you don't interpret them, yeah. you simply learn them. And it's, it's long, boring work, you know, it's like uh, swatting for school. It's, it's, but you, I just find that putting in those hours of work pay off eventually when when you need to know them under extreme pressure. But back to my earlier uh, original question, which turned into something else. Uh, um, do you write a diary every uh, night? Yes. Still? Well, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I find it uh, helpful, you see. It, it's a way of, of offloading things that are worrying you or troubling you. Um, and I suppose because I am also a writer, that writing a diary is like sketching as an artist. You just you keep your hand in, and in you a do way. sketch. I do people, sketch. and there's some yeah. some marvelous ones in in here. Give us give us another reading, Tony. I know you've got one more. Well, um, one of the the we were talking about the difficulties of playing Lear is the first scene. Uh, which act, all actors will tell you is, is just monstrously hard because in the space of one scene Lear comes up with this idea of dividing his kingdom into three as he sort of retires and then uh, asks the three daughters to declare their love for him and when his youngest daughter uh, refuses, he banishes her, and Kent uh, uh, tries to intervene, and then Kent gets banished. So there's a Sounds lot... Sounds like Donald Trump, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. There's a lot of very <laughs> irrational uh, decisions yeah. he has to make <laughs> in that first scene, and actors find this very difficult. So Greg and I began discussing from the beginning if there was anything we could do to help now, the very first production of King Lear that I'd seen in this country in 1968 was uh, at the RC with, with uh, which the young 28-year-old uh, Trevor Nunn directed with Eric Porter as Lear. And I, I, was, I found the whole thing astonishing. Never seen theatre like that in South Africa. But the extraordinary thing was that the entrance of Lear into that first scene he was carried on a bier uh, aloft, and the whole court abased themselves. And it created such a feeling of power of being a demigod. So we said, why don't we, why don't we borrow that idea? <laughs> because if he comes on with that degree of power, if he believes that he is godlike, and if the court gives him that that status, it can make this, these irrational decisions uh, perhaps easier to play. So this is the first time that we, we try this entrance. So Wednesday, 17th of August, technical rehearsal on stage in costume with lights, music, all effects. Enter King Lear. It looks so simple in the script. <laughs> but this morning we did the full spectacle. 
the grand procession with the full company plus supernumeraries and me enthroned high on the palanquin. The music was timed to build magnificently as I was carried round the corner into the light. Booming drums, bells clanging and chiming, voices joined in a deep melodic chant. A prickle went up my spine. The palanquin was borne downstage, set down, the court turned to face it, bowed, and the, gla the glass pieces slid down, revealing me. Out in the auditorium, our audience was just the technical team, but now, as the sequence finished, they burst into applause. Then Greg said, now the only way you can get an entrance like that is if you're married to the artistic director. <laughs> <laughs> Much laughter and we were off. Later, Kelly Williams, who was playing Regan, one of uh, Leah's daughters, uh, gave me Regan's take on it. Well, if that's how your daddy comes into a room, you're bound to have daddy problems for life. <laughs> <laughs> You had to your, find a fresh Lear, and you did. What was different? Can you, can you sort of extract what was different about your portrayal with all these grand people behind you? You know, uh, each time you come to one of the great Shakespeare parts, you've got these famous, famous actors that have played them beforehand, and you sort of, you have to just get over it, really, because otherwise it would paralyze you. And also, you know. there are always people in the audience who have never seen Lear. Yes, that's right. You've mm -hmm. got to try and... So, and you do, as you know, the reputation of the part is daunting. And then when you actually come to work on it, the actual detail of scene by scene and how you're going to play it, it it becomes your own without you even trying, really. It's very uh, fashionable now. It has been maybe for about 20 years to have, I call it sort of cross-dressing, <laughs> to have a woman playing a, a male part in Shakespeare and the other way around. And indeed, Glenda Jackson played Lear successfully. She did. I, I'm, I'm told. Did you, you didn't go and see it. I couldn't <laughs> see it because it was on at the same <laughs> time. No, I mean, uh, you know, physically I could, there were nights off, but I would never dream of seeing another actor, whoever it was, play a part that I was playing. You know, it would simply be confusing. Rumour has it that you have an, a, a sort of secret hankering to play Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, when, when Adrian Noble was running the RSC, he, he took me out to lunch one day and he said, um, what part would you like to play next? And I said, Cleopatra. I said, I think it would be interesting, not, not comically, but would be interesting if you played her as a battered old queen. In, in, in both senses of the word. <laughs> and uh, so I, I delivered my pitch, and Adrian was very quiet afterwards. <laughs> and then he said, Tony, if I gave you Cleopatra, every leading actress in this country would lynch me. <laughs> 
So he didn't, but I guess nowadays, if I was younger and still up for it, I could make a better case for Well, for there you've thrown down a <laughs> gauntlet. Maybe somebody will pick it up. Your immediate plans, very soon, I think, you're going to New York to to put on this production of yes. Lear at the, um, it's called BAM, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Academy, Academy. Um, which is a famous, uh, as it were, slightly off-Broadway artistic centre. It's the center. sort of art house theatre of yes. New York, yes. And will it be exactly the same, or will there be little uh, Pretty much the same. We've, we've got 90% the same cast, so... Um, it, it, yes, and then we bring it back to Stratford uh, for, for a, a, another run there. Good. And at the same time, there'll be an exhibition of my, my paintings and drawings, the illustrations from this and um, the previous book, Year of the Fat Night, about Falstaff. So that exhibition will be there at the same time, which, is, which will be... Nice. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And um, just to remind everybody that copies will be signed by Sir Anthony Sher. I don't know how he signed. You don't. You never sign it that way, do no. you? No. <laughs> Takes too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, at, at, as I said earlier, at, in the bookshop in the uh, foyer of the main theatre. Tony, it's, as I say, it's been marvellous, and thank you for Good. joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.